All right. So thank you all so much for taking the time to join us today on this Politics as Everything Twitter Spaces. Hi, Kyle. Hi, Miles. Hey, Kara. If you had to choose, what would be your theme song for the 2022 elections? I feel stumped. Um, <laughs> can I make a, I, I'm, I'm going to answer a different question if you don't mind, but it is going to involve a pop culture reference. Um, and <laughs> so I, I was thinking about this recently. I'm a big Star Trek fan, um, of course, uh, <laughs> just like so many election people are. And, um, there is a moment in um, the third original Star Trek movie, Star Trek Three, in which, um, sorry for the spoiler, but I just have to give it away. The movie's like 40 years old. so. Uh, but there's a moment in which uh, at the end of Star Trek Three, they blow up the original, the, the captain uh, blows up the original Enterprise and, and they beam down to this planet. And Captain Kirk, of course, is, you know, concerned about what he has just done. And he says, asks Dr. McCoy, said, Bones, what have I done? And Dr. McCoy says, did what you did what you always did. Um, you turned death into a fighting chance to live. And that's what Senate Democrats did in 2022. <laughs> so that's my pop culture reference that I've been marinating on because as we've talked about, the 2024 map absolutely stinks for Democrats, but by getting this extra Senate seat, they give themselves a fighting chance to live in 2024. So Kara, I'm sorry to answer your question, but it was a pop culture reference. <laughs> It was, and well, just as good, but also you've made me feel old now. Thanks, Kyle. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll answer that question. Also, I'm, I'm a big fan of Randy Newman, um, and Randy Newman has a song called It's Money That I Love, and just how expensive some of these races are. <laughs> you know, I think that may kind of, uh, I think that may kind of fit. Since you mentioned it, Miles, um, the Senate race in Georgia looks like it was going to be the most expensive contest of 2022. Um, it looks like as of now, more than $380.7 million was spent by both the candidates and outside groups, which is really just uh, incredible. Um, and we actually had a listener question come in about that. So maybe we'll start there and then and then dive more into uh, the, the Georgia Senate race. Um, but we had a listener question come in this afternoon. Was Warnock's win the most impressive performance by a Democratic Senate candidate this cycle? Uh, and perhaps fundraising aside. <laughs> I mean, I did see that. I would say, you know, I think, you know, my first instinct would maybe to say Fetterman in Pennsylvania. Because I say that because as a non-incumbent, he won by a more comfortable margin than several of the incumbents, like uh, you know, uh, uh, like your uh, like your Catherine Cortez Mastos or Mark Kelly's. Uh, but I think what's really impressed, I, I think one one of the arguments for Georgia is that you know, poor Warnock has had to, to, to run in four very high stakes races over the last two years. So, I mean, if I'm him after this race, you know, I'm getting a good night of sleep now that, you know, I finally won my six year term. Um, yeah, I think part of the what Miles mentions is the, the sort of consistent challenge and all the work that uh, that, that Warnock's had to do. And of course, Mark Kelly had to run, um, you know, in, in two high stakes elections and in back to in you know, back to back cycles. Um, I will say that I, 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 I mooted this, I think, on election night or right after election night. You know, there was obviously a lot of conversation about bad Republican candidates this year. And I thought Masters in, in, in Arizona ended up being the worst. But a lot of people disagreed with me and, and thought it was Warnock or sorry, was 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 Her Herschel Walker. 
I tell you what, you know, Arizona and Georgia are kind of similar states, at least in terms of how they voted for president in 2020 and how they voted previously. Um, and, you know, Kelly did win by a bigger margin than Warnock did. And I also think that for all of his horrible problems, I think Walker maybe had some built up goodwill in ways that maybe a Blake Masters, who was more of a, or was really a, just a newcomer to, to the public eye in, in general. Um, I think Warnock basically beat a, beat a stronger candidate in Walker. And again, I know people are going to disagree with that or whatever, but maybe that also makes Warnock's victory more impressive because, again, I think that he had the runoff to deal with and he also had, um, uh, again, I, I think, again, it's a very low bar, but but maybe a, a little bit less weak of a candidate than maybe some of the other Democratic um, incumbent senators did, specifically Kelly uh, and also maybe uh, Meg Hassan up in New Hampshire. And then another thing I would say that probably goes to Warnock's case um, is at least with Kelly in Arizona, you had other Democrats win statewide. You know, I think the bad Republican uh, candidates definitely played into that in a lot of those races. But I mean, Warnock was the only Democrat who won in Georgia. That's a great point, Miles. And, you know, we, we did see across the country that. You know, Republicans did perform well, and I think in a lot of states where they perform well in 2018, too, like, you know, Georgia, you know, Brian Kemp did win in 18, and he won again in 22. Um, Ohio, Florida, Iowa, those are all states that, that uh, came in pretty well for, for um, you know, for, for, for Republicans. And, you know, Warnock's the real outlier in that group of states as, as you know, a Democrat who won a high profile race in, in those states. There aren't really, there really weren't, weren't others in that in that group where, you know, Republicans sort of held on against the blue wave in 2018 and generally speaking, perform well in, um, in, in, in 2022, I, I would maybe add Texas into that list as well. So you both have already started talking about candidate quality, which you tracked as well in the crystal ball throughout the election season. What should the Republican party learn about candidate choices from, from this election? You know, I think Trump has a lot to do with it. I mean, we've heard a lot about that. You know, it was sort of, a, you know, for me, it's been sort of interesting because the the first really national down ballot election I followed was uh, was the midterms back in 2010. Um, and I remember, you know, they would nominate these candidates like Sharon Angle, uh, you know, Ken Buck in, in Colorado. I remember like the weekend before the Delaware primary that year. Public policy polling put out a poll where they had Christine O'Donnell up like three or four points ahead of Mike Castle in the Republican primary. And Castle was seen as a shoe in O'Donnell not as much. I'm like, oh, my God, are they really going to do it? And they did. Um, and, you know, that kind of continued into 2012. Um, and I think what really helped the Republicans in 2014 um, is they you know took more of a heavy-handed approach in the Republican primaries. Um, you know, you really had Mitch McConnell and the Senate re Republicans, um, you know, very much get involved in races on behalf of candidates like Thad Cochran, Lamar Alexander. You know, had they lost their pri primaries, you know, maybe those states wouldn't have actually flipped, but they would have been headaches. Um, you know, even Liz Cheney, you know, back in 2014, she tried to at first uh, run against Mike Enzi, who was the incumbent at that time, and they turned up the heat on her. Um, so I think with Trump sort of doing his own thing these past few cycles, you get candidates like Herschel Walker, who, 
you know, is Trump's choice, but maybe would not be Mitch McConnell's ideal choice. I'm glad Miles went through some of the history there because this candidate quality problem on the Republican side for the Senate is not necessarily a new problem, but it is sort of a resurgent problem in that we can easily point to these races in 2010 and 2012 where candidate selection ended up costing Republicans. But then the problem kind of subsides a bit in 14, 16, 18, 20. You know, I, I'm just thinking off the top of my head if the, you know if there were um, you know Republican candidates who really blew what seem to be winnable races in those cycles. It probably happened once or twice, but, um, you know, I just think about those races. I mean, the Republicans basically won, um, you know, almost all the competitive races in 14. Um, Ed Gillespie came close in, in Virginia. I think he ended up being a pretty decent candidate. So did Scott Brown in, in New Hampshire. Um, you know, the, the Republicans eked out um, a, a few close races in, in, uh, in 2016 and 2018 they actually gained seats um, despite being, um, you know, in the, in the uh, um, uh, you know, holding the, the White House in, in a midterm year. I guess the one obvious example, it's not in a regular election, but the special election would be Roy Moore in 2017. Um, but, you know, the Republicans ended up winning that, that seat back the, the next time was on the ballot in, in 2020. But so there was this period where the Republican candidate quality problem in the Senate was not as significant, um, but it really came back in force in, in 22. And, you know, to me, I, you know, you've got Senate Leadership Fund, this you know big outside group that is, you know, connected to Mitch McConnell, but is not um, is not a official committee the way that the National Republican Senatorial Committee is. And, you know, that seems to be the entity that maybe needs to take a more active role um, in, in primaries uh, going forward here, because, you know, the Republicans do have, you know, the Senate again is right there for the taking in 24. Um, but um, there are races where candidate quality, I think, is going to matter again. And um, they may want to be um, more aggressive than maybe maybe they've been in the past. So and, you we know, had a uh, and I just wanted to add that uh, quickly, you know, I think Kyle has said in the past, which I think this is right is, you know, the criticism that Republicans get sort of in this context um, is that they seem to take more of a hands-off type of approach where it's the Democrats who tend to be more heavy-handed. So I want to bring in a question that we had from John Michael, uh, who is also one of our amazing interns at the Center for Politics, and he wanted to bring up uh, candidate quality on the Democratic side. Um, he asked whether or not candidates like Stacey Abrams or Beto O'Rourke might have peaked too early, um, but their work may have contributed to other Democratic, uh, to the benefit of other Democratic candidates. Um, so I wonder if you can speak maybe, you know, to candidate quality a little bit, especially with Abrams and O'Rourke and, and you know, what do they do now? Yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I think Abrams is probably still pretty well respected within the Georgia Democratic Party. Um, you know, she's probably, she's considered probably a much better organizer than, than a candidate. Obviously, you know, I was even seeing someone say uh, last night, which you know, this, there may be some, some maybe merit here. Um, is that, you know, considering that Warnock only fell, you know, slightly b below 50% last month, was Abrams a drag on him? <laughs> so I don't know if I buy into that, but I can see the argument for it. Um, you know, I think there are, you know, I think O'Rourke is probably more at risk of being, you know, considered like a perennial candidate now. 
You know, that doesn't mean that they can't eventually win at some point if they run again. I think of someone like John James, who, you know, fought, you lost two statewide races over the last few cycles, but, you know, finally got something to this year, although it was very close. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I think we're going to look at O'Rourke and Abrams as sort of important figures in whatever, you know, the transformations of Texas and Georgia end up being. I mean, Georgia seems well on its way to being sort of established as a purple state, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years from now, we look at it more of as a, as a bluer state, given what we're seeing in Atlanta, but, you know, too soon to know, um, you know, Texas may or may not, um, trend toward where Georgia is right now to being a purple state. Um, you know, O'Rourke's Senate challenge to Ted Cruz, um, in, in 2018, I think probably will go down as one of the more kind of memorable sort of losing campaigns. Um, you know, obviously O'Rourke didn't come particularly close to, uh, to, to, to Greg Abbott. You know, one thing about both O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams that um, Republicans would mention to me during the campaign, which I think was a spot on point, which is that even though both of them are you know, great fundraisers and they're well liked by Democrats generally, um, they really have a very, very much of a galvanizing effect on their opposition because they are both sort of become the sort of like national democratic celebrity kind of candidates. Um, and so however much they might galvanize their own side, they really, um, they really sort of provoke um, the other side. And I think we, um, we saw that in, in the results in which, you know, Kemp and Abbott um, both did quite well for themselves. You know, one other kind of candidate quality thing on the democratic side that I think is worth mentioning is um uh, I had a great um, weekend, and I was up in Madison at the University of Wisconsin to speak at their elections conference last Friday. We at Center for Politics had our own um, conference on Wednesday, uh, last Wednesday evening too, which was great. So, so last week was my post-election conference circuit week. But um, you know, one of the big things that sort of w we were talking about up in up in Madison was. Um, you know, Mandela Barnes ended up coming like a point within a point of Ron Johnson in the Senate race there, which was closer than I thought, although I thought Johnson was favored the whole time and he did end up winning. Um, but there's a question there of like, would a different candidate have actually beaten Johnson? And would the Democrats then have effectively swept all of the most competitive races this year? Because really, the only you know, super tight, super competitive Senate race the Democrats did not win was Wisconsin. Um, and Ron Johnson is one of just two Republicans now who represents a, uh, um, a Biden seat state in the, in the Senate. Um, uh, Susan Collins of Maine is sort of a special case is, is the other one. And, you know, given how well Tony Evers did in the governor's race, it's attorney general hung on in that state as well. Um, is Wisconsin actually kind of a missed opportunity for Democrats or, you know, do you look at it as Barnes overperformed or do you look at it as a different candidate might've actually won? So that's just an interesting, what if, I don't know the answer to it, but um, it's something I've been thinking about a lot, particularly recently. Kyle, you, you raised this issue um, about, especially about Stacey Abrams and, um, and Beto O'Rourke kind of exciting their bases, but not really reaching across the aisles. Um, and one of the things I think that distinguished Senator Warnock, or at least got attention was, you know, that during his campaign, he really touted his ability to work across the aisle um, and really made a concerted effort um, you know, both at campaign rallies, but also in ads to tout his work with Senator Ted Cruz um, and and others. So I wonder if there are lessons that we can learn from Warnock's campaign uh, that might be applied to 2024 and beyond. Um, I think we've tended to think more about turnout than persuasion in elections recently. And 
the sort of idea that there's not that the electorate is not that movable and that there are not swing voters anymore. Or there are fewer swing voters. And while there are probably fewer swing voters, there are still, um, you know, a key constituency of voters in the middle of the electorate who tend to decide these elections in these closed states. And um, I just think, broadly speaking, in these key races, the Democrats just did a better job of persuasion. And you mentioned some of the things that um, that Raphael Warnock did in his campaign. But, um, you know, I think that, that uh, Maggie Hassan and, and, uh, and, and, and Mark Kelly and some other Democratic candidates did a pretty decent job of running against their sort of extremist candidates by um, you know, by trying to trying to grab for voters in the middle of the electorate. And, you know, it doesn't seem like this was like some sort of awesome Democratic turnout environment. I mean, I think, in, um, you know, Republicans did end up winning, you know, more votes for, for U.S. House um, than, than, the, than the Democrats did. Um, and, you know, particularly in, in, in some states, uh, you know, the Republicans really did, did quite well for themselves in like, a, you know, Florida, New York, et cetera. Um, but in a lot of the states that, you know, decided the 2020 presidential election or are going to decide the 24 election, um, you know, Democrats didn't necessarily have a turnout advantage. Um, they might have last night in the, in the runoff, but I wouldn't say in the first round in Georgia they did. Um, but the, the uh, you know, the Democrats won independence nationally, according to exit polls, and um, they were able to just do, do, I think, a better job of persuasion than Republicans did. And that's the different difference between victory and defeat in a lot of these key races. I mean, I noticed in a lot of Warnock's ad, it, it was hard to dislike him. You know, Walker, to me, seemed more negative. Um, and yeah, these runoffs are usually about turnout, but you know, these are, you know, in the article where we, you know, correctly moved it to leans democratic, uh, I talked about, well, there in the initial round, there were 200,000 voters, um, who voted for, 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 for Eric Kemp, but not Walker. You know, the, um, I called these, the, uh, you know, I called these the Paul, uh, Coverdell voters, who was, you know, he was basically a moderate Republican in Georgia, um, who kind of is representative of that type of area of the suburbs of Atlanta. Uh, Warnock, you know, from what I'm looking at, turnout in the urban areas last night, yeah, I agree with Kyle, wasn't great. Uh, you know, maybe less than ideal at least. Uh, but, you know, Warnock did very well with the Paul Coverdell voters in the suburbs like North Fulton and places like that. You know, and, and I think you could definitely apply that to several states that are up in the Senate next uh, cycle. So now that the Democrats have a 51-49 majority, what is that going to mean for governance? I think a lot of people have mentioned that, you know, the Democrats are now less reliant on some of the less reliable members of their caucus, be it, you know, Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema. Um, to me, that's less important because, of course, the Republicans have the House now. And so, um, you know, it's not like they're going to be these, you know, kind of narrow party line vote party line votes that, that go through the house and the Senate be, you know, the, the way we saw the, the last couple of years, because that's just not the governing dynamic anymore. To me, it's more, it's more about um, speeding through nominations. Um, you, you know, the, the Democrats are now going to have, you know, real majorities on the committees. Um, it sort of greases the skids for um, judicial nominations. And of course the Senate is um, kind of a, a, a judicial nominee factory at this point, um, as both sides try to fill as many of these vacancies as they can. Um, with, um, you know, checking the actuarial tables to make sure that the, the folks are, you know, relatively young and relatively healthy. Um, you know, I guess there probably are better ways to fill judicial vacancies, but, you know, the people um, people organize around or, or, or make these decisions based on the uh, um, based on, on the sort of lifetime appointment um, setup now. Um, 
but uh, so that that's important. Also, Democrats are going to have um, you know uh, subpoena power on some of these committees. So maybe some of the investigative work that um, the House was doing um, under Democratic control, maybe some of that shifts to the Senate um, over the next uh, over the next couple of years. But you know, as I mentioned. Um, my sort of long-winded Star Trek three related um, introduction here, or whatever. To me, the, the the major thing is the is the political dynamic because um, you, I think you, you know again we, we're sort of used to being surprised here in the in in the Senate, um, and of course we've talked about some of the Republican candidate problems that maybe could endanger even some of these their best targets in twenty four. But you know we know that that um, you know Ohio, West Virginia, Montana are going to vote Republican for president unless there's some sort of strange change in twenty twenty four that endangers that very fact just endangers at least three Democratic um, senators, maybe more if the Republicans do better in the presidential race than in twenty twenty. Um, if the Democrats have any shot to hold the Senate, they ne- they needed this extra seat and they got it. That's to me that's the key thing. Um, Kyle, you specifically looked at crossover districts in the House of Representatives and found that Republicans won a slim majority, at least in part by winning uh, winning more in districts that Joe Biden carried than Democrats did in districts that were carried by Donald Trump. Um, I wonder if you can talk about how Republicans were able to win uh, districts that their president couldn't in 2020. It's pretty interesting because, you know, you, you specifically look at California and New York as states where um, Republicans had had pretty good um, House cycles, particularly in New York. I think New York, um, a lot of it seemed like it was, um, you know, weakness at the top of the ticket with Kathy Hochul, who ended up winning her governor's race, but only by a little less than six points. And that, I think, contributed to the, you know, the Democrats doing kind of poorly in some of those House races. Um, you know, some of those seats, I think that the Republicans are probably gonna have a hard time holding on to in 2024, um, specifically a couple in uh, Nassau County, where I think turnout was probably the, um, the, the, the biggest culprit, although I think also the, the, the Republicans had superior candidates in both of those, at least at least in New York four, which is um, actually the Biden's uh, uh, the, the, the best Biden seat held by any um, Republican, Anthony Disposito, um, one in um you know, New York four and the, the Nassau, New York city suburbs, um, you know, also out in California, um, you know, the, you, you've had a couple cycles in a row now where you've got, you've got a number of Republicans who have really run ahead of the uh, presidential baseline in their districts. Um, I, you know, some of them I wouldn't really describe as particularly moderate, like Mike Garcia has been a really good electoral performer out in California for a couple cycles now, but he's not, I don't wouldn't say he's he's moderate on much in terms of his voting record. Um, he did benefit from a you know opponent, Christy Smith, a Democrat who frankly isn't particularly well respected um, amongst uh, you know people who follow the stuff on both sides. Um, so you know I think it you know overall you've got eighteen um, Republicans in Biden seats, you've got five Democrats in Trump seats. Those naturally are the you know some of the seats we're going to focus on the most in twenty four. You know it does give the Democrats some opportunities. Um, you know, some of these double digit Biden seats to, uh, to hope for some, you know, reversion and to flip those seats back in, in 2024. You know, a lot of other moving pieces with the House, maybe some new district maps and state like North Carolina that could, you know, maybe help the Republicans. And um, But, you know, the House is close enough that you'd expect it to be, uh, you know, closely contested in, in, uh, in 2024. And again, those crossover seats are going to be a big part of that uh, battlefield. 
Miles, your new analysis looks at split ticket voting um, and how 2022 has compared to recent elections. Ahead of the election, you identified several states that seemed likely to split their tickets, um, which you defined as voting for one party for Senate and the other party for governor. Um, In 2014 and 2018, um, each of those years, there were six split ticket states. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the patterns for 2022 and what it tells us about voters' choices. Yeah, so it's, it's um, you know, when, when I first sat down to write my original article back to, you know, back in late August, I'm going, going, going to say, um, you know, I was thinking about what states are most likely to split their ticket. And like immediately my mind went to the states that we think of as most competitive. Okay. You know, Georgia, maybe, um, you know, maybe Arizona, but, and then I thought, Oh no, duh, it's obviously going to be Vermont, um, which definitely ended up being the, the, uh, the uh, case. Um, You have uh, Phil Scott, who's, who's Republican there. You know, very popular, um, basically a moderate Republican, uh, won by something like 47 points. Um, whereas in the Senate race, it was, you know, more of something you'd expect from a state like that. It was a pretty uh, comfortable win for, um, with, uh, for, for Congressman Peter Welch, who's going to get a promotion. In fact, he beat uh, Pat Leahy's score from uh, 2016. So very interesting year. In Vermont, uh, next door New Hampshire as well. Um, sort of same dynamic in that it favored both incumbents, um, Senator Hassan um, and um, and Governor Sununu, which really it was interesting because Sununu was, you know, what at the start of the cycle he was really expected to run against Hassan. And I really wonder, considering the fact that Hassan won by nine points, if Sununu would have been able to beat her. I'm not sure he would have been. You know, it's possible. Um, and then the other states, um, you know, we had some others that were, you know, very close. Uh, we expected Arizona to uh, to end up swimming his ticket, but I guess Kerry Lake was such a horrible candidate uh, that they didn't end up swimming their ticket in those race races. Uh, in Georgia, you know, we pegged that one, you know, that was one, at the time we're like, okay, Georgia, we're considering it a split ticket state, but we're putting an asterisk next to it. But it, it, uh, that's basically when it en- ended up happening. And then, um, and again, in that article, we, um, uh, we put in a map from a guy, um, who's here on, on, uh, to to uh, Twitter, uh, Jonathan uh, Cassis, who's a great uh, source when it comes to uh, Georgia, um, his map of the new District Six, and this is something we said to look for, kind of going forward to the Georgia runoff, um, is you know this is basically the northern Atlanta uh, suburbs. Uh, the new District Six gave Kemp a twenty-eight point margin, but only went for a Walker by fourteen. Um, so, you know, the types of split ticket voters in an area like that are going to be important. Um, so, you know, this, I, I think this midterm was, is different in a lot of ways. Um, but in some ways it's not, you know, we had six split ticket states that winds up exactly with, uh, 2014 and 2018, you know, uh, the, the past few midterms. Um, just one other point related to Georgia and what Miles was talking about, um, 
the 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 Atlanta area is just it's just a growing concern or it should be a growing concern for Republicans because even some of the places that continue to be Republican in the broader kind of metro Atlanta region, um, they're getting bluer too. Uh, and you know, there was a, there's a County, um, sort of South of Atlanta called Fayette County, um, that looked like it might even flip to, uh, to, to Warnock last night. It didn't, but I think the final margin there was only a point. And so even, you know, you're, you're just seeing this erosion all over the place. And, and that's, you know, if you look at, you know, what the future trajectory of Georgia might be, if the Republicans can't stop the bleeding in Metro Atlanta, you can imagine a world in which Georgia starts to look like Virginia. Um, and, and, and a state that's really not a swing state. I know Republicans won the state for won Virginia for governor in 2021, but I think it's still, you know, pretty clearly a, a dumb leaning state at the, at the federal level. So, um, you know, again, um, some some real concerns, I think, for Republicans when it, when it comes to um, to Metro Atlanta. That, that was sort of a meme some of us had on here for a while. OK, is this finally the year we're going to get a, uh, a we were calling a get a uh, uh, Blayett uh, County. Is this the year we're going to finally get Blayett County? Um, so, you know, if you look at the trajectory of Fayette County, yeah, it's it's uh, in the 2021 uh, runoff. It was Leffler plus seven. Uh, it fell down to Walker plus three in the initial vote last month, and Walker only held it by a point. Um, I, um, I thought, think this is funny, Kyle, considering one of the races you were talking about Earlier is when I posted last night. Yeah, it looks like um, you know, it looks like Warnock is going to fall basically exactly a point short in Fayette County. Someone's like, well, you know, this provides me exactly uh, of looking at the result of the Senate race in Wisconsin. <laughs> um, you know, one one just overall point about the Georgia results too is that um, the number the the counties that Warnock ended up carrying last night um, at least this was true when I looked last night it's possible to change but that um, Warnock's county level map was exactly the same last night as it was in the 2021 runoff and in the first round of voting this time there were a couple of counties uh, that that Warnock ended up losing in the first round that he had carried in the 2021 runoff uh, a couple kind of rural counties um, sort of uh, between uh, Augusta and Macon and Warnock ended up bringing those back so the the actual um, you know county level map, for Warnock last night was exactly the same as it was in January, 2021. Um, but again, you know, you've also got a few near misses, including Fayette, like we talked about, but you know, that's maybe that's one that flips in 2024. If the Republicans don't improve um, their, you know, their image at the federal level in the Atlanta area. Yeah. That's a good point. You brought that up because that's something I was tweeting about last night is I remember uh, Lockshire Jane and split ticket who did a great job of predicting the runoff again. I remember in 2021, he would always point to Baldwin County, which is Milledgeville, um, as sort of a bellwether county for Georgia. And he ended up being right in 2021 and voted for both Democrats in the runoffs. Um, in the initial election last month, Walker got like a 49% plurality or something like that. Um, and... Um, or, um, excuse me, gave Walker a, like, a 49% plurality, and Warnock flipped it back. You know, um, and to me, that was really indicative of, you know, it looks like, you know, we've talked a lot in our articles um, about in the, the uh, South, there's this region called the Black Belt. 
um, which you know sort sort of runs straight through states like Georgia. It's more rural, but it has a decent African American population. Um, you know, I think long term, it's been trending more Republican. A county like uh, a county like Baldwin County is sort of right in the middle of the, the black belt in Georgia. Um, you know, so it, it's interesting that it went from Warnock in twenty one to Walker last month back to Warnock, um, and it looks like in the black belt, you know, Warnock didn't hit his twenty twenty one numbers. Um, but there was a bit of a rebound from what he got last month. Yeah, just generally speaking, there's been some erosion for Democrats in, in some of the kind of black rural counties. And I know that's also true, Miles, you found in, uh, in eastern North Carolina. You can see that in that North Carolina 1 um, House race that the Democrats held, but you know the, the, the margins there have not been um, – uh, as as good over time, and so you know we think about these racial dynamics, which of course are important. But you know even this sort of rural versus urban, you're you're sort of seeing those trends um, almost like transcending race uh, in 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 in, uh, in in some ways. Because of course you know we talk, we talked about democratic growth in Atlanta, but you know there has been a little bit of fall off in some of the rural parts of the of the state, even even places with significant black populations. So I want to raise one last topic uh, for for our session today, and that is with regards looking ahead to 2024. Um, President Biden and the DNC have put out a new proposal um, that's already been adopted by the Party Rules and Bylaws Committee. Um, um, to allow South Carolina to go first. And part of this is to um, elevate especially Black voters. Um, uh, in, in the discussion of the proposal so far, there's been a lot of focus on the fact that, you know, that Black voters especially have not gotten their due in terms of being able to determine the presidential nominee for the party. Um, but under this new proposal, South Carolina would go first, holding its primary in February 2024. Um, uh, Nevada, New Hampshire would follow. Um, and then the idea is that Georgia would go next on February 13th and Michigan on February 27th. Of course, to get the changes in Georgia, the Democrats are going to have to somehow persuade uh, the Republican Secretary of State to set the date um, uh, then um, rather than to uh, go along with whatever the Republicans want. So there's going to have to be some negotiations there. Um, this has also been viewed as perhaps a signal that Joe Biden is going to announce that he's running for re-election probably shortly after the new year. Um, but I wanted to just get both of your takes on the implications. Um, I think we've needed, oh, the other thing that the proposal would do would be to try to eliminate caucuses um, as a form of nomination within the Democratic Party. Um, and, and so, you know, there's, there's a couple of elements to this proposal. Um, you know, I think reform is long time needed. Um, I don't know, you know, if this is the answer, especially when, you know, the state they're choosing to go first is the one that benefited uh, the sitting president. Um, you know, there, there's certainly some merits to South Carolina. It's relatively cheap to run there versus other states. Um, so that could help out some underdogs. But I, I just wanted to to get both of your takes on on the proposal and what you think the implications might be. 
Um, well, you know, I, th- I think pretty clearly, you know, we saw in 2020 that, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire just are not particularly well representative of where, you know, the sort of what the Democratic Party coalition is, but basically because both of them have um, electorates, primary, even even primary electorates that are that are uh, almost entirely white. Um, and, you know, also the, the thing with the caucus process, I mean, we've had Iowa caucuses in the past 10 years, uh, 2012 on the Republican side and then 2020 on the Democratic side, where it wasn't even really clear who actually, you know, kind of got the most most votes. And, of course, it's not traditional, um, you know, votes. It's like delegate equivalents or whatever. But, um, you know, I just think primaries are just just better and easy, easier to understand. Um uh, you know, so, so, I mean, I guess, I guess the, you know, some of the Southern states have traditionally had a kind of earlier place in the process, given that Super Tuesday historically has been very Southern dominated, but this kind of, you know, um, gives black voters in some of these, some Southern states sort of more of a say early on. Um, and I think probably gives sort of a more complete picture early in the process of where different um, demographic groups in the Democratic Party are, because between Nevada, South Carolina, and New Hampshire, you do get a decent kind of racial cross-section of of where the party is. And then, you know, Georgia later in the month, another state with a very significant black electorate, but also um, a lot of racial diversity across the the board in in Metro Atlanta. Um, And then Michigan, I think, is a pretty good choice in the Midwest. I might have actually chosen Illinois, um, given that you you do get, you kind of get a little more diversity there, um, you know, big, huge city area in Chicago. Um, but I think Michigan is a, is a perfectly decent choice. And of course, Michigan is such an important um, swing state. Um, and, and Michigan, I think, is a is essentially a must win state for Democrats in the um, in, in the Electoral College um, at, at this at this present time. So, um, you know, yeah, I mean, it's it's self-serving to some degree for Biden, but I the, the, the map, it sort of makes sense to me. Um, you know, we'll see if they can actually get it get it accomplished. And, you know, there are ways for the party to sort of punish a New Hampshire if it decides it really wants to be first, because you may recall that back in 2008, I think it was Michigan and Florida, um, basically their delegate allocations were either cut in half or taken away entirely for sort of skipping in line. Um, and so if the Democrats want to play heavily, if they want to, if they want to go heavy after New Hampshire, there are ways for them to do that. Uh, I wanted to say quickly on the primaries, uh, Kyle was saying, well, you know, if, uh, now, if they move South Carolina up, that may look like, you know, sort of a self-serving uh, move for Joe Biden. And, well, you know, sometimes these, uh, you know, sometimes the order is not immune to politics. I remember, you know, sort of sticking with Georgia. Uh, one thing that helped Bill Clinton in 1992 when he was getting the nomination uh, is Zell Miller. Who at the time was the um, was the governor of Georgia, who was uh, very much a Clinton guy, uh, moved Georgia up in front of Super Tuesday, and that's something that gave Clinton um, sort of a boost before Super Tuesday. So you know, I do agree that uh, um, you know uh, it may look bad, but it wouldn't be unprecedented. Well, Kyle and Miles, thank you so much for sharing your expertise yet again this week. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. 